Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining Masari Happy Hour, Episode 8. As always, before we jump in, we'll start with a quick disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our host and our guests are merely their own opinions. They do not reflect any endorsements or opinions of their companies. This discussion is meant for informational purposes only. You should not take their opinions as investment advice as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is updated monthly and available at our website. I will share our latest tweet with those disclosures uh, as I kick it off to Ashita. Awesome. So um, there's a few things happening right now in this space that we can touch on. Um, so firstly, Ethereum has transitioned to a Rolex-centric roadmap. And so we'll touch on what's happening with that and L2s recently. Um, and then modular L1s have been a very hot topic in the past few months with Celestia and Fuel um, building on a single component of the blockchain instead of the entire stack. And then um, finally, activity around app-specific blockchains enabled by Cosmos. Um, so maybe to start off, uh, Ali, could you touch on what Ethereum has been working on in order to support rollups and its roadmap? Yeah, so like you said, um, in the coming months, Ethereum is switching to a proof-of-stake consensus mechanism from their original proof-of-work. Um, and in conjunction with that, they're pivoting to a rollup-centric roadmap. Um, and in essence, this kind of means they're shifting their focus from on-chain computation um, and being a user layer to creating this settlement and data availability layer for rollups to kind of thrive in. Um, <clears throat> this is also kind of catalyzing a movement towards modular design, which you touched on briefly. And in my opinion, I think over the past few months, I've kind of been thinking about what will this kind of mean for rollups and Ethereum in general? Um, and the big things that come to mind that I think are important for rollups to kind of dive into a little bit more are increasing composability within the layer two applications themselves and kind of harnessing the interoperability between these layer two applications. Um, so in the future, you have a more cost effective and seamless integration between these two layer two, between these layer two um, applications. So I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts about um, what do you see are the key moves that these rollups need to kind of do, um, and just your general thoughts for the ecosystem in the future. Yeah, going off of what you just said, I think interoperability is going to be key, and then trying to do sort of a, a quick path to scaling, because these solutions, while they may be sort of compatible, they're all competing for a similar set of users and user base. So it's really going to be a race who can get there first. The ZK EVM discussion, which I know we'll, we'll get into um, in a bit more detail, I think is going to be an interesting use case in that because the first one who's actually able to make a functioning ZK EVM that folks are able to port applications on to fairly quickly and utilize it just like um, they would layer one, I think is going to gain sort of a critical mass of users fairly quickly, even if applications could be portable between L1 and whatever ZK EVMs kind of come in the future. You know, it makes me think of almost like Uniswap. You know, there's a lot of forks and um, 
other protocols that are very similar to Uniswap. But Uniswap still has the balance of users because it's been, it was the first one, it's the one with the most innovations, and it's the one people naturally gravitate towards and, and think about. So I think it's really going to be a race to who gets there first over those next few months, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun to watch. What do other folks think? Tom, when you talk about ZK EVMs, like maybe even for the audience, let's clarify like what you mean, you know, because there's different types of ZK EVMs. There's different like layers to this thing. And so are you talking about, you know, like to what, like a bytecode level? Are you talking about, you know, like to what extent do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd, love, uh, I'd love Matt to take us through the, the specifics there um, on sort of the bytecode uh, versus language level um, compatibility. Yeah, so um, you really have like four major players in the ZK EVM space right now. You have uh, Scroll and Polygon, which are bytecode level compatible. Um, and then you have Starkware and ZK Sync, which don't have uh, true ZK EVM implementations. They have their own custom virtual machines that um, can have some level of compatibil compatibility with the existing EVM stack. So uh, Solidity, developer tooling. Um, and I think the key differentiator here is that Scroll and Polygon, their implementations uh, more closely mirror like today's Ethereum clients like Geth. Um, so out of the box, you have a lot more access to developer tooling, um, things like testing frameworks and uh, existing infrastructure. So um, I think that's the lens that I kind of view ZK EVMs in is that Scroll and Polygon are uh, very close to the current Geth implementation that's running in prod. And, um, you know, Starkware and, and ZK Sync are a little bit more custom and there's uh, more steps between going from EVM-based code to uh, code that's actually being able to run on these uh, custom virtual machines. So how much does it matter for the end user um, how compatible the ZK, uh, how EVM compatible the ZK EVM is? Like, does it truly matter for the end user or is it this more of a developer conversation? I, I think it's more at the developer level. I think it's ease of development, ease of porting over your applications from L1 with minimal to no code changes. Um, I think all of these implementations are really trying to court the developer community first. And I think for an end user, it pretty much looks uh, the same across implementations um, for the most part. But I would still say at the end of the day, it matters. It, it does matter because you're, you're fighting over the same user base. You're fighting over the same developer base. Um, so it, it's definitely a component uh, of, the, of the equation still. Um, but just, Matt, to your earlier point, do you have um, a lean or does someone have a lean? Which one of these you know, three, potentially four, if you throw in StarkNet solutions, uh, they find most attractive at the current moment and, and why? Yeah, so I, I think there's a, a component of speed, how, how fast these systems go into production. Um, I think just naturally you'll have a, a first mover advantage. Um, you're seeing a lot of progress on that front. One on ZK Sync, they recently announced a couple of weeks ago that they were 100 days away from uh, mainnet, uh, Polygon ZK EVM, also teasing a, a launch on testnet very soon. So, um, you know, I, I think they're all positioned relatively similarly today. I think the uh, ZK EVMs that are more closely resemble Geth will probably pick up adoption faster uh, just because developers can port over their existing applications 
And uh, they're very familiar with that type of developer environment. I think it's still um, an open question as to which implementation wins them in the long run, because you do have ZK Sync and Starkware, which have elements of compatibility, but they also have their own custom execution environments. So maybe in the future, five years down the road, the EVM doesn't have as much of a moat as we think it does, and developers will gravitate more towards languages that are optimized for a ZK environment. So um, I think in, in the short term, as uh, these projects that are very closely mirroring Geth will just, uh, because they're easier to use, will kind of gain traction. But I think in the long run, it's definitely an open question as to which uh, ZK implementation um, wins out. And I think it really comes down to will developers switch to a different environment with different developer tooling. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me is kind of these applications continue to accrue value over time and they start to become, they don't have their own tokens, they spin up sort of their own validator sets and they all become fairly successful. If any of them will follow kind of the DYDX model and move to their own layer twos because they aren't receiving the value accrual back to their native token, they don't need the security of Ethereum as much as they do today. They don't need that developer community once they've reached sort of a critical mass so at some point, do these do these things become big enough that instead of becoming L2s, they become their own L1s? And this is sort of the natural ecosystem or sort of life cycle of these things. You you grow up on a layer two, and you eventually become your own layer one. And what does that what does that really do to Ethereum um, long term? Uh, any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think right now, um, and this might just be today's landscape, but it's really important to signal alignment with the Ethereum community, um, Ethereum developers. And I think moving to your own standalone layer one right now um, could be problematic uh, because the majority of users on these rollups are from the Ethereum community. Uh, and there is value to that trust minimized bridge that lives between L1 and L2. Um, so I, I think that might be a priority and that might have its advantages to stay as a layer two on Ethereum rather than porting over um, you do get the advantages of being more sovereign by porting over to your own standalone chain, but you, you do lose out on some of the uh, security and the trust minimized bridging um, that exists on rollups. Yeah, and I guess like just to add to what Matt is saying, you know, we, we had this conversation earlier today, Matt and I, and then I know we've talked about this too. It's like there are protocols out there that are kind of working to go and encourage collaboration between um, some of these L2s and Ethereum. Um, so like one of them, thinking about is you know there's there's a protocol called eigenlayer working on restaking and the idea being that you could go and effectively put your your native l1 token and put it under double jeopardy for like your middle late your middleware use cases um and so you know if your data availability layer your roll up um you can go and essentially stake your eth or sorry if you're like you know if you're a staker of eth you can go and stake your eth and also provide security for those L2s. And originally, you know, you can go and say like, what's the incentive for these other projects to go and participate in this new type of protocol, right? Like if you kept your value on your own L2, why would you want to go and partake in restaking? And I think the way, you know, eigenlayer restaking is built is there's actually ways to go and essentially stake your ETH and have that contribute to your, your, your middleware. Um, but also kind of potentially like through an LP or through some other token, uh, go and 
you can basically well, you can go and stake your L2 token and ETH and provide security. So you're essentially adding kind of like the decentralized security that you get from ETH validators as well as you know what you have whatever you get from your from your roll up. So is that so that's interesting for that particular protocol, but I guess for Ethereum more fundamentally long term, does that sort of help it as a you know um, a protocol that is pivoting to settlement and data availability? And is that where it will accrue value in the future? Because right now it's you know sort of everything and it's gaining a lot of value from from being sort of an execution layer and abstracting that away. Does that does that take value away from Ethereum? Um, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting conversation to have and something that I think a lot of Ethereum folks are sort of ready to dismiss out of hand, which, which I don't think is, is fairly productive. I think execution moving to the layer twos is potentially an issue for Ethereum um, in the future if, if these L2s are sort of able to spin up their own communities themselves and have to rely less on those developer communities that, that they rely on today for Ethereum. I, I actually think the I biggest think threat the biggest to, threat to uh, I think there's a little bit of feedback. I'm going to try that again. Um, I, I think the biggest threat to L2s right now is really, is there a more compelling data availability and consensus layer um, that can truly scale these these layer two uh, roll-ups? So I'm, I'm thinking about Celestia and Polygon Avail. Um, is the need for scale on layer two does that outweigh the alignment with the Ethereum community? And will these rollups start to port over and become sovereign chains on, on Celestia or something like a bail where they don't necessarily need to leverage uh, Ethereum for security and data availability, but they can do that on, a, on another blockchain that's like specifically built to, to serve that function. Uh, I think that's a bigger threat to rollups right now. Um, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out when Celestia uh, hits mainnet and Polygon Avail hits mainnet. Um, It'll be interesting to see how rollups approach leveraging uh, other data availability layers uh, to to truly scale to get scale that they can't get on Ethereum essentially. Just to clarify, you're saying that they're the biggest threat to it's the biggest threat to Ethereum, right? It's not the biggest threat to necessarily rollups. Uh, yeah, so I think it's the biggest threat to rollups on Ethereum. I, I don't think rollups on Ethereum will pivot to be their own layer ones. I think they'd rather they would leave Ethereum and deploy on a more specialized data availability layer like Celestia. Is that different between optimistic rollups and ZK rollups? Do you feel that way for both? Um, I I probably feel that way for for both. Uh, you have settlement layers like Sevmos and um, actually the Cosmos Hub has talked about transitioning to a settlement layer. And uh, I think it'll be very easy to port over existing layer two constructions on Ethereum to, to one of these settlement layers that lives on top of Celestia. What about something like uh, Fuel VM? 
you know, I guess switching topics a little bit here, but thinking about in, uh, how, you know, we're talking all about EVM, we're talking about Ethereum, but I mean, there's, there's you know, other virtual machines out there, FuelVM being a notable one because they're kind of going about doing things a little bit differently. And ultimately, right, like the long-term game with Ethereum is you're still going to have all this kind of like state, you know, execution that you need to, that you're still going to struggle to scale. And kind of like with FuelVM, what they're doing, they're going and making kind of like contract UTXOs, right? Where instead of just kind of like a, you're, you're spending, you're just like, instead of more than just like Bitcoin, which is like a payment transfer system, you're actually implementing contract UTXOs that you can go and spend smart contracts in um, as like a way to scale. Like, do you guys have any kind of thoughts on on how that kind of long term is a little bit different than EVM and how that's kind of like a, a threat or a challenge to what, you know, Ethereum is building? Um, well, FuelVM is, you know, like they've branded themselves as a modular L1 and supposedly the fastest execution layer. Um, so they, the language they use is Sway and it's a Rust-based language. And so I think the concern around not having a big enough developer community building around Fuel can be dismissed because the Rust community is like, it's huge. And, and so, um... I think that makes fuel pretty competitive with EVM. And, and then, yeah, like as you were saying, on top of um, enabling parallel transaction processing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Ashita. I, I have no doubt that emerging execution environments will start to eat at the EVM dominance just from the sheer fact that like TVL um, locked in DeFi on, on an EVM-based chains is sitting at something like 80% right now. I, I just did a piece on this. Um, EVM dominance is so high and, and it's uh, so clearly the number one execution environment right now. I think there's nowhere for um, that dominance on, on EVM chains to, to go, but down. I think you'll start to see Fuel and StarkNet gain more developer traction. Uh, they, they solve a lot of the issues of the EVM uh, today and they're just more highly optimized. They take the learnings from the years of iteration that the EVM has gone through and they don't have the tech debt that's associated with it. They don't have to maintain backwards compatibility. They can build out their execution environments from scratch and uh, really optimize those systems for, uh, you know, modern development and, and scalable execution. So um, I think Fuel is really cool. I, I haven't got my hands dirty and played around with it just yet, but I mean, it checks all the boxes, everything that you want in an execution environment. Um, like you were saying, parallel transaction processing, an interesting UTXO model and uh, a Rust-like programming language. So I'm, I'm very, very excited to see how that ecosystem starts to take shape. It's pretty interesting to think how that's gonna that's gonna happen, right? Because you can't just go and port over like a Uniswap. You can't just port over your existing application. You have to go and basically build that from scratch. So obviously, SwaySwap that's gonna be kind of like the the first Uniswap like uh, Dex essentially in this new model. But for a lot of developers, I guess what's interesting is you don't have to go and I mean, you know, not exactly like you're you're, you're forking up an existing protocol, but you're basically starting from scratch and rebuilding it from the ground up. So in terms of, I think, uh, having a challenge, like that's definitely going to be uh, very attractive, I think, for a lot of builders. I think the interesting thing here for a lot of folks who are coming into the space is these problems are still certainly not solved. And there's a lot of open questions and debate. And I think it's exciting for folks who come in from other industries where there's less potential for innovation and right now we're just at the forefront of trying to figure out how this whole system works and what's the best way to actually figure these sort of broader problems out 
So it's an opportunity not only for sort of builders, but also investors, because if you can pick the right piece of the stack that's going to accrue value, there's, there's a big opportunity. And I know a lot of times in the space, we sort of talk about how the VCs get the first crack at that. And that's certainly true, but I think there's going to be opportunities for investors as these tokens sort of roll out earlier and earlier, and there's more opportunity for these things to accrue value. So we're, we're talking a lot about like general execution environments, your EVM, ZK EVM, Fuel, StarkNet. Uh, do you guys have any opinions on application-specific chains and application-specific rollups? Do you think they'll be the dominant drivers of activity in DeFi, or, or do you think that uh, these generalized smart contract layers will, will continue to kind of own developer mindshare? I'm pretty excited to see how how it turns out, you know, how it goes. You know, like something like Osmosis, an app chain, a, a DeFi focused app chain. Like they, I think they, they I, personal opinion, right? But I think they're very obviously. Uh, I, I'm I'm very high on potentially what Osmosis could become. You look at something like DYDX, also build, kind of building their own chain. That's kind of TBD. I think that's the issue right now is that there just hasn't been a ton of notable examples it's kind of just like an idea that a lot of people are are working on or building but for the moment it's all been kind of on on ethereum or on not on a specific application chain i'm just not sure why any successful application with the right technology in the future is not going to want to launch their own chain with their own token to accrue the value to their token and potentially accrue some sort of monetary premium. Yes, they're gonna have to pay validators and that's an issue. Also a big issue if their token, um, you know, sort of drops in value and then of course the security for the chain is depreciated. But I think those things are gonna matter a lot less in bull markets. If we start to see another upswing again and you have token values appreciate fairly quickly, you're gonna see those concerns drop away from folks' minds and they're only gonna think about the things they're missing out by being on a layer two and by paying security to Ethereum or others. And I think it's just going to be the next trend that you're going to see a lot of folks move to either Cosmos or app-specific chains like that moving forward as they find some sort of product market fit. So I think we're just at the beginning of this, this trend moving forward. That kind of falls into a question I had for the group, um, and Tom, maybe I'll kick it back to you. Do you think that a lot of the changes that are being made are strictly developer-led, um, specifically when we're in a bear market and, and choosing to do things that uh, are easiest, most secure? Um, kind of building on that point, do you think that Ethereum's uh, dominance will change drastically in the next bull, or is this is it still something where um, ease of porting over applications and ease of use will still make it attractive. What what sort of timeline do you think, if any, um, would would come into play to for someone else to to take away uh, Ethereum's throne in the smart contract realm? So I think the EDM has certainly won to a certain extent already, and you've seen multiple other chains just sort of acquiesce to Ethereum and build their sort of EVM-compatible chains, and including Solana at this point. So I think the EVM, in a certain respect, 
as one. And it's sort of, you know, what else can be built that is different and better than Ethereum? You know, Solana had their shot. It seems like they're sort of blowing their lead. There's other chains that are coming out now, sort of Aptos and Sway, sort of more Rust-based, faster, uh, potentially even uh, more Solana, e-Solana type chains. So, you know, it's sort of always going to be a potential new thing. I think the interesting thing with Ethereum is that it's developer-led right now, as sort of you alluded to. And that means it's sort of slower, uh, I think, than folks in the market would like. But all of Ethereum's competitors right now are either sort of, you know, either blowing their lead or blowing their chance to, to take um, over Ethereum or just not finding the right sort of uh, solution with the broader market. Um, and they're letting Ethereum continue to build sort of this, this big lead and build out their technology stack and, you know, decentralize their community and, and do all of the things that, you know, make Ethereum potentially the winner at the end of this sort of proof of stake race that we're in right now. Um, I mean, you, you saw Solana have a shot at them. You saw AVAX have a shot at them. You saw Terra have a shot at them. And all of them sort of fell by the wayside uh, fairly quickly. So, you know, what's it going to take for something else to continue to pull market share away from the EVM in the space? And I, I think they're going to have to, whoever it is, might have to do it fairly quickly before Ethereum gets to the end of their roadmap, which sounds like a long time away, but it's probably only two or three years away. Sorry, I cut, I cut out there at the end, but I'd be interested to hear what other folks think. Maybe while we think here, and this is uh, may have been something that had been answered, as rollups become more attractive because they are uh, typically cheaper. Do we think that they can handle um, the volumes uh, that we see currently on on Ethereum, or does it uh, become an issue where this extra traction and transaction volume kind of uh, weans out the pack and and gets rid of the these rollups that that may not be used um, heavily in the future? Well, as I understand it, like rollups are technically only a kind of like this temporary solution, you know, because you can get volume on these rollups. And then if it becomes too much volume, you can go and spin up another rollup. So ultimately, this is not, I think, long term scaling potentially. But I mean, for the time being, uh, rollups seem to be kind of like adequate solutions for for the volume that we see. Yeah, I mean, in terms of volume, how fast do things need to be? I think at the beginning of Solana's roadmap, they wanted to do a million TPS, and is that is that really necessary? I'm I'm not sure. Like, I don't I don't think you need a million TPS. I don't know. Visa does like a hundred thousand TPS, and that's not even fully utilized, and that's a global transaction network. So, what do you really need? To, to be that fast for, uh, you know, in terms of microtransactions or trades or whatever, I think there's a certain um, level where you're, where it's sort of good enough. So, you know, what is, what is good enough in terms of uh, speed? 
I think there's a level there. I don't know if there's a good enough in terms of fees before you hit free and then eventually maybe somehow paying your users to incentivize them. So there's a spectrum there. But I think there's certainly just a good enough in terms of speed and L2s are, are really almost there already um, and will only sort of get better and improve. And a lot of the sort of ZK-based solutions and others have said, you know, while we're just starting with ZK EVMs, you know, the roadmap is going to be really exciting in terms of how we can make them cheaper, faster, um, and more scalable go, going forward. We can't hear you, Matt. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, Tom. So I, I actually think when you start to scale up the data layer, um, approaches like Celestia and uh, ETH2 with dank sharding, I, I actually think you'll see scaling as mostly a solved issue um, with this proliferation of rollups. Uh, you know, how Celestia is able to handle scaling is there's a separation of concerns where blockchains today are responsible for uh, consensus, data availability, and execution. And when you're able to modularize the stack, you can have highly specialized layers that are interoperable with one another. And I, I actually think that's going to address the bottleneck of, of scaling. And I think we'll have all the TPS and low fees that we need um, as these data solutions start to start to come online. Um, you know, I think the two front runners right now are, are definitely Celestia and um, first proto dank sharding and then dank sharding on Ethereum. But um, we'll see if other players start to enter the fold. But I, I, I actually think scaling the data layer is probably um, one of the components of, of getting blockchains to their end state in terms of worldwide scale. For a pleb like myself, Matt, does that hold true in a theory-crafted world where the general population has, has come, in, come into the fold and let's say Ethereum is still uh, the main chain as far as smart, smart contracts? Do these solutions um, still fix the, the bottlenecking problems that, that we see on occasion today. Yeah, I, I think dank sharding has the potential to do, to do that, uh, especially in the context of, of Ethereum. Um, you know, so, so the bottleneck right now that you have for rollups is posting data to Ethereum is very expensive. You have to go through the EVM, uh, store your data as call data, and that data persists on the chain for forever, right? Um, and there's these new solutions coming out, um, EIP4844, which is proto-dank sharding, where you actually have a dedicated space on the beacon chain that lives outside of the EVM, where user, the rollups can post their data and have that data there for a, a shorter period of time. It's not indefinite as it is today. And then that data gets pruned. So um, really what Ethereum is providing a guarantee that data will be made available for a specific amount of time. And uh, that's really interesting because, you know, rollups no longer have to compete with transactions on L1 Ethereum for block space. There's a, a new fee market that emerges there's this data availability fee market that kind of arises and it separates um, the posting of data and the actual like verifying of the um, uh, proofs coming from the roll-up. So I, I de definitely think that, um, you know, Ethereum is, is capable of solving those issues. I think it's just a question now of who is first market, whether it's Ethereum uh, kind of scaling at the data layer, or if it's something like Celestia that hits critical mass um, because I mean, core development on Ethereum is, is notoriously slow. So um, it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that race unfolds over the coming years. I think as we all sit here and, you know, we talk about how the EVM has won and how it keeps uh, 
it keeps winning. It, it, it reminds me that only some, what, about a million people are using these, or addresses are using Ethereum per day. We're still in the beginning stages. If if we think this is a global settlement layer or you know the underpinning of a lot of financial technology in the future, a million people a day is absolutely nothing. So while it may have this huge lead, I, I think we have to be mindful that there can be folks who can overtake it. And the challengers to the throne have so far completely missed. But if something new does come out that catches product market fit at the app layer, you know, Stepin tried to do it or did it a little bit on sort of Solana and you store some of those users, go over to Solana and stick a bit. But you get a consumer level application that actually sticks. You could see folks potentially move away from Ethereum. And then if that new um, that new layer one is has applications that are easily portable, who's to say that the applications that are on Ethereum today can't move over there? So I think it's just important to remember that Ethereum has found a lot of use cases, but it hasn't found broader product market fit yet. Um, so there's still an opportunity for others to kind of to kind of jump in. Um, but just just to pivot a bit, I, real world use cases are emerging on Ethereum uh, today. So Ali, I know you recently wrote a report about some of the, the real world use cases that are coming up uh, in loans and, and others. Uh, did you want to just expand a little bit on those? Yeah. Um, so like you said, over the past couple of weeks, I've been focusing in more on just looking at that gap between real world, world assets and just the crypto community in general. And it's kind of amazing to kind of see this adoption um, with real world assets. Uh, so lately, I know um, <clears throat> that there has been a larger shift in like banking institutions kind of deploying um, real world asset vaults in the Ethereum ecosystem and showing a shift um, in kind of their opinion of DeFi and the landscape in general. Um, so I think long term, we'll kind of see more institutions, um, assuming all goes well with these current uh, these current applications being built, um, we'll see more of a push for long-term adoption within institutions and just general public. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because they become almost like a quasi-bank on-chain. So it's, I feel like a lot of this stuff, it becomes how far do you want to get back to the traditional finance community? Um, you know, you, you've sort of almost come full circle at some points. And we saw that with DeFi. You know, we thought it was DeFi. And then we realized it was just sort of DeFi in, in the back and sort of backroom deals rather than actual fundamental DeFi. So you wonder how far you want to come full circle with a lot of these technologies um, before you actually realize that you sort of come away from the ethos of what you sort of uh, tried to build here in crypto. Does that become the next catalyst for, or I guess the catalyst for the next bull market? You know, you get more uh, maturity in like real world assets on Ethereum or just in general using, or in blockchain. Anyone have any takes on that? Um, I think it could be. I think the problem right now is that we don't have the infrastructure to kind of port over a lot of these real-world assets in a very meaningful and effective way. Um, so assuming that we're able to actually build out some of the more logistic and like legal matters that are necessary for this to work, um, I feel like it could trigger some sort of catalyst for um, 
more growth and uh, appreciation in the market. Basically sounds like infrastructure is the root of all problems still, right? For so many different sectors, gaming, for real world assets, all of it really. I, yeah, it's, what, what is what is the next bull run? The, the next bull run is incremental flows from somewhere um, outside of the current ecosystem and current set of investors. So you need a new use case. You know, it was DeFi in the past. It was NFTs. It was DAOs. It, it's it's going to catch us all by surprise. But whatever it is, it's going to bring in a whole new cohort of users who aren't paying attention to crypto today. Um, I think everyone is betting on gaming. And if you looked at our recent uh, report yesterday from the acquisition Masari made of Dove Metrics. You'll see that in Q2, we had an enormous amount of investment in gaming again after an enormous amount of gaming investment last year and in, in, the quarter before uh, Q4 last year. So it's, it's going to be something I think that takes us all by surprise. Uh, and I, I don't know what that is, but interested to hear other ideas. Ali, do you want to touch on, um, as far as real-world real application, your, your piece on crypto and real estate, I think something that's exciting for me, um, similar, similar to, to what Tom said with DeFi, um, is being able to to turn uh, real-world assets um, into something that, that you can see and use on-chain. Yeah, um, so there's a bunch of different protocols that have started to come up that are trying to sort of onboard the real estate market into crypto in general and using blockchain technology to do so. Um, <clears throat> I think some of the most meaningful protocols that have come out have been kind of tokenizing real estate assets and being able to eliminate most of the middlemen that are involved in purchasing or renting or even um, kind of tapping into home equity in general. So you're saving money for buyers and sellers on all fronts by kind of just streamlining the process. Um, but I think it's a very promising application of crypto and blockchain technology. But again, I know a lot of these projects are kind of trying to work through all the different logistics and being able to, you know, go through the whole escrow process and transfers of titles and stuff like that. So again, it's an infrastructure problem to kind of bridge that gap between the real world and crypto. But I'm excited to see kind of what comes out of these different projects and if they're able to gain momentum in the future. If you think of a perfect use case for crypto, I mean, crypto is trying to coordinate capital between untrusted parties um, and solve for a lot of middlemen between those, those parties so they can do a bilateral sort of transaction. And you can't think of a better solution where that's the case than real estate. I mean, you have brokers, you have transfer agents and title agents and lawyers. It just seems like such an obvious solution, but it's sort of like Redfin and Zillow did with, or tried to do with, um, you know, real estate agents and abstract them away. It just seems the legacy system has so much momentum. It's going to be one of those things that, that takes time um, to figure out, but it seems like such a sort of obvious area where crypto can, can make an impact. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I think part of the problem, like you said, is kind of uh, competing with the legacy systems and kind of the original competition of Zillow and Redfin being, uh, you know, just regular old brokers um, and real estate agents. But 
I think another like problem with some of these protocols is being able to enforce the you know, ownership and the title process on the blockchain without going through some sort of government entity to be able to do so. Um, yeah, but I, again, I'm very excited to see if they're able to do it and kind of what comes out of these different projects. Awesome. Thank you guys. Um, join us in a couple weeks here. That'll be August 17th um, for Masari Happy Hour Episode 9. Uh, and we'll catch you at 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, guys.